0: Hi, it's Sunday night. In other words, Air of New Year, or I don't know, do the guys start with uh, a. No, they start at 12 o'clock at midnight, um, December 31. Anyhow, this uh, talk today is being sponsored by Josh Goldman in honor of his grandfather's 90th birthday. She wrote me the other day, in other words, tomorrow. And he asked me to, and I know Josh from, the, from New York, uh, and he asked me. He says, since it's in honor of the grandfather, would you speak about an area of history, like can relate to like American Judaism in the early part of the 20th century. So um, because of that, uh, I wasn't thinking along those lines. Once he put a bee in my bonnet. So I'll say a few words along these lines. This is in honor of Mr. Yale Miller, who uh, is apparently, I don't know St. Louis, so well, I was there once years ago to speak there. Um, but I know Rabbi Greenblatt is a friend of mine, and uh, and he also told me that Mr. Miller, Yale Miller, is a pillar of the community. And what's really interesting to someone such as myself, these are families that always stayed Shomer Shabbos. That's unusual, because, and that's what I want to talk about today. <coughs> uh, if he's nine, that means he's born in 34, okay? So really, really, really... He grew. That's the right time to be born because as he's growing up into the forties and fifties, that's when Orthodox Judaism really started to take off. no Doma America. Let's say, for example, in the twenties to America. Let's say in the forties or fifties. All right, and of course, after and and Doma America in the forties and fifties to us later in terms of Yiddishkeit. I mean, I know that, but anyway, I will honored this request, and uh, it was just interesting because he said, you know, his. His grandfather and the grandfather's parents, all the rest of it, these, are related to Rabbi Kalevsky and Rabbi Kaplan. You know, like I say before, these are the families that stayed from and Nachman Klein's wife, I remember. These are the families that stayed uh, from <clears throat> once upon a time, as I always say, where it was harder to get actually something actually kosher than it is today to get glatt kosher. When it was harder than to get milk that was kosher than it is today to get throw, right? And uh yeah, this is called fire probe, but you know, the trial by fire. The people that stayed from in that era are um, you know, are, are um, obviously people with strong character. I'm talking about the families now, especially in the Midwest and St. Louis. I mean, it is true that St. Louis, Chicago, Cincinnati, even Cleveland did have traditionalist communities. And they tried um Around the early 1900s, to put together something that eventually you and I will call day schools already. It never quite worked out. You understand? Never quite for a whole bunch of reasons. But what I wanted to, therefore, focus on in my remarks tonight, uh, as it was occurring to me, is this following basic piece of realia. If you a 100 years ago in America, or 120, 130 years ago, what did you have to read you and I live today not only in a country that has Orthodox Judaism, but in a subculture, an entire subculture. Orthodox Judaism is not simply religion. It is that. And, uh, and nothing I'm saying is anti-American or un-American. It, but to the degree that Orthodox Judaism has been successful, it's created not simply a group of people with a common set of theological beliefs, fundamentalism, Nomism, and all the rest of it, but an entire subculture, which includes a lot more than just theology. You understand? By Christians, the definition of religion is what's your theological beliefs. In Judaism, the theological beliefs are very important. For example, do you believe in Torah Messina or do you not? I mean, that's not unimportant. But that in and of itself ain't enough. For Orthodox human to flourish, you need like I say, an entire subculture. So just off the top of my head, without even digging even deep in the, in the slightest bit deep, you need a community where there's a shoal, a butcher, a mikvah, a bakery usually, you know, that sort of thing. You know, someplace you can get kosher food. You understand? You, you need a certain, um, what's the right word? Infrastructure. Maybe a basic infrastructure, but you need infrastructure. Without that, it's gate niche. But that's by no means the whole story. <laughs> That's what you call an externalist type of infrastructure. You also need an intellectual infrastructure. And I don't only mean, you know, Gamora and things like that. But rather, I mean the kind of very thick uh, subculture that you and I live in, whether it's in Israel or America or, or Britain, for example, places like that, Canada, a thick subculture, in which you have all kind of components that come together in one big, you know, jigsaw puzzle, to create a vibrant Orthodox Jew- Judaism. <clears throat> Two things that come off at the top of my mind would be literature and music. Okay, today, if you think about it, um, there's like, I mean, just think of Arturo Feldheim, just you know, as a code word. There's a million books coming out all the time. That means there's endless reading material. Some of it's written lousy. Some of it is not written lousy. You get it? Some publishing houses try to have a higher standard of writing and things like this. And they're all kind of flourishing, I mean, to a large degree. Which means they're supplying a need. You can't tell somebody, um, sit at home the whole Shabbos and don't do anything and just, you know, <clears throat> avoid the 30 malachas, you know, that sort of thing. And that's your Shabbos. And go to Shul. People want to read. You get that's That's a, that's a, a sociological Messias. <clears throat> okay? That's why, uh, what's it called? The Ami and the Mishpachah and those kinds of things are bulging. People want to read. Ah, you'll tell me why you read this dumb article. That dumb article. That's not your business. You can't say nowadays, we've we've kind of intuitively learned this. You can't have this, you can't have this, don't go on the internet, don't listen to music, don't read a book, don't do this. It means don't you if you try to concentrate on the negative without replacing it with something without offering a positive alternative, in my opinion it's gonna fail. So for example, you can't tell people don't listen to glacier music unless you have a huge amount of Jewish music, which is going to be the type that's most shaped to them. Me, myself, and I, I don't care for most of this modern stuff. Big deal. But my kids do, and my grandchildren do. You, you get it? That's what counts. You understand? That's what counts. I, like, tuned out after Shlomo Karbaugh, but that's just dumb me. If if my whole family, if all them, the people I know, all tuned out to the Jewish music, then guess what? They'd be listening to other music. That's That's how it goes. You can't, in our... 20th and 21st centuries, in my opinion, which are dominated by consumerism, whether you like it or not. Okay? They're dominated by the idea of, of, you know, of supplying people with stuff. And they're throwing themselves at you all the time. That's what the nature of modern consumerist culture is. They throw things at you and say, you must buy this, you must access this, you must read this, you must do this, right? Now, you have the right to say no, And life often consists of constantly saying, no, 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 no. So it becomes a kind of verbal equivalent of what you do on your computer all the time in the Gmail. You just can't, you know, you delete, 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 delete. But after a while, you get tired of deleting. I mean, you got no choice. You get tired of deleting. And all they want is that you shouldn't fail to delete one particular one, and then you go into the next thing you know, and they gotcha. You see? So in other words, modern consumerism consists of throwing things at you, And sooner or later, you acquiesce and use it. And then they got you hooked to one degree or another. So you have to have an entire world of Jewish music. From music, let me call it that way. Right? Aye, the kids run around. Better they diss than something else. And with literature, it's even more important. Inquiring minds want to read stuff. and the from world as well as the non-from world, Jewish kids, generally speaking, the ones who have a brain and who don't have reading difficulties, seriously, they want stuff you gotta give them if you don't give them here, they'll get elsewhere um, when I was a kid not that I lived so long ago you know, you, you shop you go to the library you know what I'm saying uh, you want to read stuff that's interesting, compelling I knew certain Russian Shivas, I won't go to names they used to go to the library, bring back a million books for their family I guess they wanted to choose them or something but the point is like this can't say the whole is to say, "Don't do anything." You understand? You got to supply material, so that's where all these magazines, whether I like them or don't like them, you know, like I say, Mishpacha, Hamadiyah, this, that, and the other. You, you like it? You don't like it? It supplies people with something to do that's you know that that doesn't go against our principles. <laughs> okay, it is consumerist, no question about it. You open one of these magazines with the, with the ads and all the rest of it. But at least it's kosher food. You know what I'm saying? Uh You know, that's what... There's nothing against the din. My friends, this was not the case 100 years ago. And before that, in the United States of America, that kind of stuff basically didn't exist. So think about it. If you were growing up in the USA in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and even later, what is there to do? There's no such, you know the American culture, even at that time, was very dynamic. Just the country had started, uh, you know, the records and the music and the, um, you know what I mean, the Tom Sennison and the movies. It's all from here. And by the standards of that time, it was attractive stuff. So let's say you're a Jewish kid and your family is Shem Shabbos. And on the other hand, you know, you have no, your Shalom because your family keeps Shabbos. You don't read the kids of Shulchan Aruch, you can't read the Hebrew there. You know what I'm saying? Your Hebrew's not that good. And certainly not for the Chay And ten times certainly for Shulchan Aruch. You, you get what I'm saying? So there were no good translations. I was thinking to myself, what translations were there in 1900 that would be user-friendly in America? The answer is, there were a lot of translations into Yiddish. You know what I'm saying? Again, the Chai Adem, even the Chachmas, a lot of the Gemaras, the Mishnais, they are translating to Yiddish. A lot of the Hebrew classics, famous form you heard about. But an American kid growing up in this country doesn't want to read translations to Yiddish. That's not the culture. He goes in the street, especially if you go to public school and things like this. That's not your language, right? Now, once upon a time, the parents and grandparents would say, like "This shame on you that it's not your language." I remember such a period when I was very, very young. You know, My father, for example, I've told this story a hundred times, came to this country after the Holocaust, and pretty quickly got a job in TA in Baltimore because he couldn't speak English, only Yiddish, and they, they wanted a, a rabbi who would only talk Yiddish because they were fighting a rear guard action to keep it that the Limudic kodesh should only be in Yiddish because otherwise it's not authentic. This was the prevailing ethos in the United States in the first half of the 20th century it was a big mistake, you understand, know Because you know and I know, whether you want to admit it or not, and I grew up in a Yiddish-speaking house, whether you want it or not, Yiddish is not essential to Orthodox Judaism. There is such a thing called the Svarim, for example, you know what I'm saying? And the attempt to make it so, in my opinion, was counterproductive, especially for the people growing up. So if we're talking today honoring someone you know, I was born in the 30s. Imagine people born in the 20s and the early 10s, and before that, what did you have to do? I mean, you kept Shabbos because your family kept Shabbos. You kept kosher because your family kept kosher. But your intellectual stimulation could not be satisfied in Jewish sources. You understand? They weren't in English. They weren't written well. They weren't this, that, and the other. And let's face it. You and I live in an era, we've lived through an era of unbelievable developments in the history of Torah literature, meaning the art scroll and that sort of thing, in which user-friendly, very accurate, and very learned uh, texts have been made available in the English language and in other languages. But here I'm talking about the English language. (laughs) So the person who grows up today, who wishes to, you know, could go through a whole with the art scroll, dumbbells, uh, version of Mishnah, or other things, and the cartoons, and I think they're great, okay? And by now, now as I speak, now I'm sure the whole Shulchan is online, and this place, that by Safari, or this one, that, I don't know which one's kosher, which one's not kosher. But there's a huge amount of quality translations which can help you bridge the gap and hopefully get you to the point where you can study the text itself without help. Right? Once you have the English, you can figure out the Hebrew. And may I say, Things like the Art Scroll, and now in Israel, this um, Masifta and these other sorts of things. They're even breaking down the advanced learning, the Lumbis, for you. And uh, right now, this is not organized in English yet. It's in Hebrew, as far as I know. But sooner or later, the Masifta, as they call it, and that kind of series, I don't know what they're all called, will be melted down in English. You know what I'm saying? It'll take quite a good deal of scholarship and eloquent writing. But we do have such people in the yeshiva world. The art school demonstrated that. You did not have this at that time. See, if you lived 100 years ago, growing up, I mean, the sitter had an an old-fashioned, lousy translation. It was very, very far removed from the art school sitter. You know what I'm saying? Uh, With its pluses and minuses. I think I told you, many, many years ago, I can't remember how long, there was a guy, I think he's no longer alive, in Shomer Moon over here, about you, but uh, I don't think he ever got married, you no, know, that sort of thing. And he told, and I knew him a little bit, you know. And he um invited me to come, a Shabbos, whenever it was, making a him. Really making a him? Oh, very nice. What, are you making a him one, dark school sitter. I thought to myself at the beginning, like cynical, and then I reproached myself, and not cynical. The truth of the matter is, you have to give the guy a big credit. You know what i You have to give the guy a big credit. For him, that was breaking through. Now he went to, he went, had a chavrusa, and they did all the, all the English and the notes at the bottom, and so on and so forth. And now, he was going to be able to feel comfortable with a sitter. So imagine the Jew, 100 years ago or more, he doesn't really feel comfortable with a sitter, especially if they have the old-fashioned translation. You don't know exactly what they're saying. You see? That's why it's right, remarkable that there are people like an honoree today, who still remain observant, and from, too, from, too, you know, um, and he ended up, I mean, uh, Josh Goldman told me his his grandfather ended up in Skokie, later in Lakewood, even, time of uh, Rabban Cutler. I mean, this is an era of the the revolution that you and I are living in the aftermath of. Before this period, before the 30s, I'd say, for example, certainly, it just didn't exist. So how do you see families? And I know there are some families in Baltimore, for example, and elsewhere. There are here and there, if you seen them, that somehow or other, even though they couldn't read the Hebrew books, and they really couldn't, to be perfectly honest, they couldn't really understand all the kids who were going to read there. Uh, not to make fun of anybody. And if they did, that's as far as they could get. How are they going to read Shah's? How are they going to read Mishnah? You know, I mean, come on. Uh, and Alpha Pekin, you know, they, they stay from but ninety nine point nine percent didn't. See, that's the point. You know, what I'm if it's a system in which you say somebody stays from, in spite of everything, that means the the circumstances are not good. This has to do with the fact, I hate to say it, that whatever leadership of orthodox Judaism there was in the late eighteen hundreds, in the early nineteen hundreds, had a failure of vision, in my opinion. Right? They didn't see the necessity of what I'm talking about, because most of them came from Europe. And the old system worked for them, growing up, and that's what they felt. That's the only system which they felt comfortable for. You understand? I recall many, many years ago. Uh, I was in Lower East Side, in Beigelizer, and I was reading an English translation of the Rambam. something like that. I can't remember what it was. And this old rove was standing behind me, and sort of screaming at me shouldn't read it, English is no good, this and that and the other, and, I mean, I was, uh, you know, 20 years old, something like it, 18 or whatever, and, okay, yeah. I mean, I didn't make a big deal out of it, but I'm thinking to myself, that was so dumb. You understand? It's so dumb. First of all, it's a turn-off. Second of all, what if the guy can only read English? You understand? Who are you to tell him that it's, a, it's not a perfect translation, it's not a this, that, and the other? Come on. And so the result was you had a very hard time, as we all know, just cracking the basic literature of Judaism. Plus, you didn't have the auxiliaries, which are of extreme importance, which is your own autonomous field of Jewish music, and your own autonomous field of what I would call Jewish novels and that sort of thing. You know what I'm saying? Let's call it Jewish biographies and novels. Right? This meant that there was nothing that your culture offered you that was l'maysa. You see? Uh, you had to grow up in, really on Shabbos. You had to go to the library and get books and read them on Shabbos, right or wrong, whatever the Shulchan Ar says. And hopefully you'll say Shomer Shabbos in spite of everything I just said. You see? Because you can't have your childhood one of deprivation. Because then you're definitely going to go up to Derek. I know people when I was young, used to say, keeping Shabbos means, can't turn on the lights, can't do this, can't go to movies, can't drive the car, can't, everything was can't. Right? And I. And the truth is, in their families, that's all there was. The parents were like European or whatever, and they did not know how to give anything rich over, in terms of Judaism, to the younger generation. So if everything is can't, after all, you say the heck with it. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I don't even blame them. You understand? So this is when we talk about, if you're asking me about American Judaism in the first part of the 20th century, which really goes together with the last part of the 19th century, America was a wasteland. Not a wasteland because people not from. The truth of the matter is, that's not true. If you went to America 100 years ago, literally 100 years ago, 1924, and certainly 110, 120 years ago, whether well, in Baltimore or St. Louis, we're talking about here with somebody from St. Louis. It's quite the opposite. The community was fairly from mean there were a lot of people who had just come over from Europe and started businesses and this that and the other whatever they did and um uh, actually Saint Louis once upon a time was it was mom from community thevada here and everything uh I mean long ago, but it didn't last because there were no day schools and there was no you know the, the next generation didn't, didn't didn't carry it on, but it also didn't last because there were no attempts. To provide things of interest to the young American boys and girls who require something of interest, you know what I'm saying? We require something of interest. Is there a prayer group? Is there this? Is that? Do you have trips? Do you have? A, think about what so much of education consists of now, especially in the younger years. Every ten minutes is a CM, Every ten minutes is a trip. Every ten minutes is you know somebody getting a prize. It's a little strange for somebody my generation, but I applaud it. Because you have to find a way to the mind and the heart of the boy and the girl living in the year, not 1923, but 2023. But in 1923, it didn't happen. You see? Um, So even when you had pockets of people and whole neighborhoods, I'll say it again. If you went back to 100 years ago and more, because of the massive European immigration to this country, uh, about 2.5 million Eastern European Jews came here between 1881 and 1924, let's say. So uh, that included a very large number of from Jews. Of course, there was also a large number of non-Jews. from Jews, That's true, but the very large number of from Jews, and they settled in cities like Baltimore, Philadelphia, Chicago, St. Louis, and so forth. They did, and you did have a mass population, and you know butcher stores and kosher this and Jewish signs and all the rest of it. But the young, it, it was all sort of aimed at the middle-aged guys the guys, you know, certainly 20 and over, certainly not 20 and under, and probably not 25 and under. You know what I'm saying? Uh, This was devastating. You know what I'm saying? Because you were actually denied access to a very rich religious and intellectual culture, which at the end of the day is the basis of everything. The person is able to read Sfarn and can only do, uh, you know, the Toshibik Sabah, the Toshibak and I don't say you have to know every peerish or something like that, but there's a many times I've given podcasts on famous books that have a tremendous influence in Jewish history, and so forth. Uh, you know, in, in, in the Jewish heritage, how can somebody access any of this if they can't really read Hebrew well, not well enough to read a difficult book? And to be perfectly honest, even though we're a hundred years later, and people now have day school education, and it's time to yeshiva education as well, to be if you're perfectly honest. Sometimes you want to get that translation because it'll help you understand it better. Ah, you should understand it. it's only Hebrew. You can. <clears throat> but if they have a good translation, it'll make you understand it better. All right, it's a tiny in the education system. So what? The whole point shouldn't be I have timers in the education system. The whole point should be is it working? If it's not working, how can you fix it? It should work. You see? How you fix it? It should work. So the people growing up in these eras um, had a hard time. Now, in retrospect, just off the top of my head, what was to stop people, let's say in 1900, from translating into English? Just off the top of my head, the words of Samson Raphael Hirsch, Uh Rabbi Bernard Drachman translated in 1899, I think, the 19 letters. That's a quality work. You can like it or dislike it, but it's a quality work, And it speaks to the educated young man, young woman. Hirsch had a lot of other writings. And it's in German. You don't even have to translate from the Hebrew. There are plenty of people in this country who knew how to do that. But they didn't do it. You see? Uh, there wasn't a really good translation of Hoshirashi. Think about that. Um, something as basic as that. There was one guy, Miguel, whatever. It wasn't good. Um... Why not? Talk the, when was the kids Ketur Shulchanak translated in English? I think around 1960. You see what I'm saying? Very late. I'm talking about the first one uh, by Rabbi Golden. I'm not talking about the, the art school one. Uh, now we live in a, in a completely different environment. Um, in other words, tell, tell somebody 100 years ago, you're going to have art school Yerushalmi. It would boggle the mind. You see? Today the person is interested, even a little bit interested, can access whole areas of Jewish thought and ideas and literature that they simply could not access long ago. So how did you expect somebody young to stay religious or have any kind of intellectual respect for the Jewish tradition if they couldn't read it? You had to sort of rely on what we would call filial piety, which means I love my parents, I want to be like them, you know, I want to be a credit to my bubby. You know, I'm not knocking that either. But that's not a great basis upon which to build. It works for a few people, like the honoree today. It didn't work for a lot of other people. You understand? And when you throw into the fact, also, that since there was no day schools, everybody had to go to public school one form or another, that magnifies it, the problem. You understand? Uh, I'm reading the bio that was sent by Josh Goldman, as I said before, that uh, his parents, Mr. Miller's parents sent them to, uh, there was no Orthodox High School in St. Louis, so they sent him to Skokie, to Chicago, HCC. It wasn't in Skokie at that time, High School in Base Minish. Just like Robert Kalevsky, you understand? And later to uh, to Lakewood and then to Khaim Berlin, right? Where, where at the same time, he could get a college degree. Uh, all right, so this is somebody who, by luck, went to the few schools in the country that came along later and actually taught you how to read Gemara. You know what I'm saying? No, it's how to crack the literature. Even then, it wasn't Posh, it's before the art school, so you had to do all the hard work yourself, but it could be done. How many people have that that, that route that I just read you? That you went to a, a, an Orthodox high school and then to an equivalent of a college in Lakewood, no less, and Chaim Berlin, no less. I mean... <laughs> How many high schools were there in the whole North America? If you go back again, once again, 1923, there wasn't a high school in Baltimore. There was one or two in New York. And there was they started this one in Chicago. I think that was it. Okay, for the whole America. Maybe I'm forgetting one. I don't think I am. Think about what I just said. Millions of Jews, there's no schools. And so how are you going to expect to teach anybody? Now, why didn't they set up just as I told you before, why didn't they translate Hirsch, or Kama Rashi, and things like this? The scholarship was there. There were enough people, and I know how it worked. There were enough people in this country to uh, to to you know supply the translations for these sorts of things. There were Yechidim, but there was enough. But they didn't do it because they didn't think in these terms. Why didn't they make day schools? They didn't think in these terms. People were so in love with the public school idea plus it was free, and they thought all you need to do is have a Talmud Torah in the afternoon, and so on and so forth. Plus, there were um, all the new educational reformers who said, don't waste your time in the old texts. Instead, learn modern Hebrew culture, meaning they wanted to replace the Jewish religious culture with a different culture. Uh, and they wasted 100 years doing that sort of thing. They wasted 100 years doing thing because today, all those movements are kind of dead. All those schools are folded. And they didn't leave anything in Chesha behind. As a matter of fact, if you see now Jewish intellectuals um, writing in, um, in some of these Jewish magazines for a ceasefire in Gaza or something like that, there all these crazy ideas. Five will get you ten. They went to these, you know, this whole Talmud Torah type system or this other faux-Jewish learning system uh, these teacher colleges, all the rest of it, who deliberately avoided engaging directly with the text of the Torah it's, it, it's kind of interesting. Now, at the removal of 100 years, we can see it. Smart people could see it 100 years ago, but they couldn't see it now. I mean, now everybody can see it. So if you're expecting to build something on a house of sand, obviously it's not going to work. You know what I'm saying? It's not going to work. So what's the bottom line? you had a vast failure of at least a million Jews to transmit successfully the tradition and the desire to maintain the tradition to their children. That's quite a a devastating verdict I just gave. There was no attempt to create a subculture for the kids. There was an attempt and a fairly successful one to create a subculture for the adults. But they could read the Yiddish papers, they could read the Yiddish translations of this farm and all that sort of thing. Remember that guy did the Homishnayas? Not a bad job. But what Was he Hoish or something like that? No, no, no another name. Uh, it'll come to me. Uh, Jake Shookman, remember. Uh, you, you, you know, you had these. That served the older generation, 25 and older, 30 and older. What about the kids 20 and younger? And if you don't have anything for them, How do you see the future? But nobody thought that way. And so, I guess you could talk about this as a kind of, I won't say a Dor Hamidbar, but a blind generation. It's interesting. A nine-man below Yeru. They weren't blind, but they were blind. They could see, but they couldn't reach the proper conclusions. It's it's a very interesting period in Jewish history. Uh, It's sad, and it's particularly sad based on if only you would have done this, if only you would have done that, things would be different. As I always say, had YU existed in nineteen hundred, the whole face of American jewelry would be YU, I said, would be uh, completely different. Because then, then the, the whole conservative wouldn't have even started. And wouldn't have even started. And if it would, it'd be very tiny. And you'd have, if I can call it modern orthodoxy, sweeping America. And eventually I, me, myself and I I think the modern orthodoxy would have moved to the right. Because after a while, once you start actually learning the text of the Torah show up you have a little revolution going on in your mind, saying, you know, what I've been doing until now, this is not right, and we have to change it. And, you know, without making waves or screaming or anything like this, these changes kick in. It's one of those patterns of orthodox sociology. They have these kinds of uh, uh, spasms of uh, continually of re reassessing one's mitzvah performance and one's lifestyle. Uh, it's, that's an interesting fact. At least that's what we've seen in our time. But if you went back long ago, it's shocking how little existed. So I'll say it again. If I was at that time in um, St. Louis or Baltimore or anywhere else, what do I do to keep me interested in terms of anything intellectual. The best written books were by the Jewish Publication Society, which was basically conservative. They started in the 1880s in Philly. They're well written, but they're they're not kosher, let's put it that way. You know what I'm saying? They're not kosher. If you know how to use them, they're very good. But it's like if I lead a trip to the Bible Museum. Unless you have somebody guiding you which room to go into and which room to to avoid... Don't go. You see? So whatever quality literature was around at that time, of any sort, was mamish like the Bible Museum. He had to know which stuff is dafka, which stuff is lavdafka, which stuff to read, which stuff to skip, which information, you know, is helpful, and which one do not. Who's got the time and the effort? to? that's not realistic. You can say it's not realistic. And so the result was um, a pretty heavy devastation. So when, we talk, when I was asked to speak about the state of uh, American Judaism uh, long ago, uh, it's very thought-provoking because religious liberty you did have and there's nothing stopping from people making schools and high schools all the rest of it. But they didn't. The country was full of Chosh that's the, the period of the Aguriz Rabbanim, but none of them had vision. I don't know why, none of them had vision. You know see, Just because you know how to answer a Shiloh or write a Chiddush or a piece on Kotchem in in one of those rabbinical magazines and journals they had at that time doesn't mean anything if in your own town can't get together a working day school for boys and for girls, and Kabulkamra High School, and he shiva beyond that, I mean, what was the plan? Their own children either went off the derrick or became very, very uh, call. It, it happens often. So why didn't they see it? But they didn't. Okay. Now there are reasons for this. The complaint I'm making has to do with the fact that they, with a little bit of thoughtfulness, they could have seen that the model is already there in front of their eyes. I mean, you had the Roman Catholics in the U.S. in larger numbers, and the Catholic Church, early in American history, when they started coming here in large numbers, there wasn't also a Chinuch system for them. And they all went to um, uh, Protestant schools. And a lot of them moved out into the Midwest, and the frontier, and married Protestant girls. And they went off to Derek from the point of view of capitalism. Um, uh, I'm sorry, from the point of view of Catholicism. But the Catholic Church is an organized operation. They have a whole clergy which stays celibate in order to concentrate on building up the church, uh, they said, they recognized correctly, that the only way to make this work in America is to create a parallel universe. You have a Catholic schools from kindergarten to, you know, to Fordham, to Notre Dame, to Georgetown. You can go all the way through, from kindergarten to getting your MD, or your law degree, or any other kind of degree, all within the confines of a school, that's under the control of the Catholic Church. And it worked. By and large, Catholics kept a large constituency. Right? So you can live in St. Louis and go through Catholic institutions all the way through. And by the time you come out as a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, or whatever you are, a teacher, you're a practicing Catholic. The Jews could have done the same thing. That's what we've done today. We don't have those kind of resources, so we don't have a Jewish equivalent of Fordham and Georgetown and all the other stuff. But we have enough, okay? We have enough, and so the result was that the Jews could have said, "Why don't we just imitate the the, the model is already there? Why don't we just imitate the Catholic Church, and we'll create a whole system from kindergarten, certainly through uh, high school and college years, and maybe even graduate schools?" That's why you eventually did, didn't they? You know, in the time of the '50s and '60s, what was his name, By Belkin. Uh, the idea was to have something all the way through that you're under Jewish auspices, that's a firm environment. But they never did it. So if you look in these books, they're out now, that talk about Big Rabbonim in America hundred years ago, and there are such things. Um, and they have, some of them, have Sepharim, let's say, for example, Shalas and Shibas, which in and of themselves are like Chashavim, Meaning these guys know how to learn. They did. In spite of what I just said, nobody's ever heard of these books. They have no traction. Because they're associated with a decadent era in American Judaism. And therefore, people generally by a large are not interested. I have a book here from uh, Gedali Schwartz. Of uh, Overshalom. His uh, grandson gave it to me. In English. Uh, I forgot what it's called. I don't have it in front of me but some of you will know I'm talking about. It's in English. And he apparently was very interested in this period of 100 years ago. And he, in a very nice writing style, talks about famous childless and things like that he had in America once upon a time, all the Kashua scandals and all the Mi'kmaq problems and all the 101 other things like that. And you see, because he was an aficionado of this kind of old literature, that this famous rabbi in Boston in his shalas and shiwa sabre said this, and the other guy, wasn't there some big rabbi in St. Louis, who was the first one to talk about the Erev in the city, I think it was, and uh in, mikva, Shabbos in general, gittin, you know, the whole nine yards. And you see, there were big rabbis, if you're talking about the level of great talmudic HaKhan, and they wrote things, who read them? Nobody read them, except maybe some of their colleagues, and nobody else. So it knows it had no impact whatsoever when anybody, as they say before, twenty five and younger. And probably even older than that, but I'm just saying. So what does it matter if I'm growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, for example, a hundred years ago, or in St. Louis or anywhere else, if somebody wrote a very learned piece on some passage in the Talmud or the Agatha or the Halacha, it it it, it doesn't mean anything to anybody. Okay? The great Jewish uh, how should I put it? the greatest of Jewish scholars in our history, I have to watch how, how I say this. I'm thinking of people like the Rambam and Rashi. The greatest of Jewish scholars devoted their efforts to popularizing the Talmudic literature and things like that for the masses. That's what the Rambam was trying to do. I don't know if he was successful or not. I don't know if every lay person reads the Rambam, but nevertheless, his goal was to take it all and crunch it together and make it easy. He says so, right? And, by the way, Yosef Karo, of all people, thought the same thing. Remember, he's got this list. You can finish the whole Shulchan Aruch in a month, 60 chapters a day. Shulchan Aruch, mind you. you know, these people were trying to uh, popularize, to some degree, the literature. Not the rabbis in America that I can think of, you know, nineteen hundred, nineteen ten, twenty, thirties and forties. Only when the refugees came after the Second World War things came together, and you started to get, you know, like the Feldheim and the other things like this. Uh it took a while for the genre of Jewish uh literature, novels and things like this from novels that take off and develop. Uh all this is part and parcel of what keeps people from today. Now I'm not saying you're from because you have a Jewish newspaper because they have a Jewish novel, but it's a very important piece of the overall infrastructure. And people don't want to usually call attention to that because they'd rather think more in terms of, oh, Gemara, this, yes, or Ramban, you know, whatever it is. For the shi'bas and the seminaries, all the rest of it. But the little things have more of an impact than you you imagine. And you go now to a concert, this, that, and the other, has more of an impact than you imagine. So, This is the point I'm going to get across today. The failure of vision and of action a hundred years ago was shocking. The failure to, you know, hop what is necessary in America had to wait two generations till like, I guess, the 15s and 60s, right? And that's a whole story by itself. You and I know once they hopped, it started to work in, and kick in, and they started to retain large numbers of the youth. So, today you have a whole orthodox sociology, you have a subculture. Okay, so you're from Jew, you not simply have a, a number of theological propositions to which you adhere, but you also know people in another city and they go to conventions and you know you read uh, the same media, and now they have the internet. It's it, you know, so instead of saying don't see anything on the internet, instead you have to fill it with. From content, let's put it that way. Things like that. It seems to me that is the only successful strategy in the consumer stage. To simply say don't, 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 don't. It's not is not a very successful type of strategy. Not in my opinion. Um, and so, if we find today someone who is described... And again, I'll say it again. Josh Goldman wrote to me. I mean, his grandfather. I don't know him, you know. Obviously, he's from because he... Actually he was born in the right time, so by the time he was in his teens, it was early nineteen forties, there was a Skokie. And there was a Lakewood, and there was a Chaim Berlin. A couple years before that, there wasn't. Chaim Berlin started as the yeshiva, I think, in the late thirties. It was a, it was a it was a school and then it became a high school, you know, when what's the name took over Rabbi um, Huttner? Uh, you know, around colour didn't come here till the war. And the Lakewood didn't start till you know, after he came here. I mean, if he would be born 10 or 20 years early, I don't know if this would work out. Because he'd be a young man growing up. And where would you go? I guess you, I mean, you did have why you interpret us. So that you had. So parents really cared. They could, you know, send him to New York. But um, only when you have the proliferation of these sorts of things. And um, the development of an American English language culture that speaks to the people and informs them and supplies a hunger among so many of the young that they want to get clarkite what they're reading. A person wants a good translation of because they're dominating every day. They wonder what the heck they're saying. A person wants a good translation of the Chumash or the Mishnah or something like that. Or even the kids of the Shulchanach, to be perfectly honest, because even though it doesn't seem hard to read, a lot of times it is. And a lot of times you don't get the essence of it. But if you get this new art scroll um uh, additional five, six volumes, you get the whole business. They do explain all the obscurities for you. So, the Americans, you looked for Clark Hite. Nothing wrong with that. If, when it didn't exist, you just lost a ton of people. Uh, Yale Miller was obviously lucky enough to come along at a time when the institution started to form and therefore, today celebrate ninetieth birthday. Rabbi by Greenblatt told me is a, a, a big Mishpach and all the rest of it. King Yirbu, uh, you know, they 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 can look at a successful, you know, uh, a successful mission. But there's a lot of people that didn't have that, right? And my contention is, it's, it's not even their fault. You see, if you want to assign blame, the blame goes to to the leaders who didn't have division. Now, that's a rough thing to say. But in history, that's what you get to do. You get to beat up on dead people, you know, you, if, if you're honest, to put it that way. If you're not honest, you can just get an article, biography of somebody, and say all the nice things about that. But if you want to be honest about it, then you have to ask yourself the question, how was it that so many came over here? I mean, thousands and thousands. The parents were from, to one degree or another. And the kids, and certainly great kids not. Uh, it wasn't a shot that they went through day school and achieved all the rest, and then went off to there. Day schools and was that didn't ex- didn't exist. You see, didn't exist. So now it's hard to understand how did the older generation imagine that they would be able to transmit the tradition successfully to the younger generation? You know, like what's the plan? And without a plan, nothing happens. What how's the pasuk go? Without vision, the people perish. Right? Bein chadom something I forget how it goes. <laughs> this is the story, in my opinion. American Judaism in the first half of the 20th century. Anyway, I just want to say those three words and thank Josh Gomes for sponsoring. And we do wish a happy birthday and many more to his grandfather. And with that, I will see you, hopefully, in the next English New Year.